Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Every talk on this podcast was originally delivered at an in-person event for university students, perhaps for one of our Thomistic Institute chapters on a university campus or at a Thomistic Institute retreat or conference. These lectures and events are happening around the country and around the globe all the time. To learn more, visit us at www.thomisticinstitute.org and sign up for our email list. We'll keep you posted about what's happening next. And finally, please subscribe to this podcast and don't forget to like and share these recordings with your friends because it matters what you think. Hopefully picking up where we left off last night, but also with Father Thomas's talk um, earlier today, um, I want to go back to the, um, I mentioned to you that when I got to the, the Synod um, in 2015 and had the chance to speak with, again, bishops, theologians um, from all over the world, um, two questions were on the top of everyone's um, agenda um, at the forefront of everyone's mind. That is, What's become of the theology of the body? And again, I think um, Morris Letizia gives um, a, a good answer to that question. But then gender ideology, what do we, what do, we do with that? How do we, how do we respond to this challenge? Um, Archbishop Richard Smith um, from Edmonton, um, who has his back to you in that bottom center picture and then is up on the top left, um, when he found out that I had done my doctoral dissertation on the issue of gender, he said, we got to talk. And he took me out to lunch and over a plate of clams and linguine that you can only get in Rome, um, we talked for three hours about gender ideology. Where does it come from? What are the sources? Why, why, are, what, what, why is this kind of coming to the fore right now? And how do we respond to it? And it really kind of um, alerted me to the fact that even the bishops feel like they're 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 caught off off guard um, and a little bit unsure of how to respond. So what I want to do is answer some of those questions with which I was bombarded at the synod. Um, what is gender ideology? Where does it come from? But then draw on what we've been talking about with the theology of the body in terms of formulating the beginning of a response. So let's start with some clarifications of language. Um, first, the term transgender, which is an umbrella term that gets bandied around a lot. And it doesn't have one set um, uniformly agreed upon meaning. It can mean any number of things. It can Sometimes it's used to, I think wrongly, to refer to people who have intersex conditions. And I'll say more about that in a moment. Sometimes it's used to describe people who are struggling with gender dysphoria, what used to be called, and I think is better described, as gender identity disorder. Um, sometimes it is used to describe people who are have a stable gender identity and suddenly they come across this set of ideas and they uh, their sense of their themselves as a body person is destabilized and they start to describe themselves as non-binary or gender fluid. The clinical name for that, and there is a clinical name and there have been studies not very popular studies, I must say, is rapid onset gender dysphoria. And the numbers of people, especially younger people affected by that are growing quickly um, in our culture. It is noteworthy that a few decades ago, the primary people who were showing up at centers that did what we now call gender transitioning, sometimes it's called gender affirming, which is an incredible misnomer, um, were middle-aged men who were unhappy with their lives and who decided to try to address that unhappiness by making their bodies look like the other sex. Today, the primary people showing up at gender clinics for transitioning procedures are young people, um, predominantly women, many of whom would um, show up on the autism spectrum. So these are oftentimes people who have been struggling with a sense of identity, struggling with a sense of self for much of their lives, and suddenly come across a 
set of ideas or a group of friends online or in person who tell them we can fix all of that. You just have to take these steps. Again, more on that in a moment. Um, first of all, let's just remind ourselves the of the reality of the body for a moment, right? Even on a purely biological level, sex is a multifaceted and complex reality. It's not just the genital differences between male and female, the, the obvious physiological differences in our bodies. But it's the fact that our bodies have a completely different biochemistry at work in them, governed by the preponderance of estrogen, estrogen in women, testosterone in men, that affects um, body type, personality type, even, even cognitive, cognitive processing. The fact that every cell of the human body is genetically indicated as male or female, other than the gametes, right? Every cell is marked with an XX or an XY chromosome. And the interplay of that, those different biochemistries and genetic markers account for a host of secondary sex characteristics, right? The fact that we have differences in body um, type, proportion, um, muscle to fat ratio, um, body hair, all kinds of the, uh, all the other visible differences, phenotypical differences that we can see between men and women, between males and females. And then we have this last thing that um, some scientists will say, um, there's been a lot more attention devoted to so-called brain sex. And there are some researchers who will say that the most sexually differentiated organ in the human body is the brain. Because, again, not only do our brains work differently, which accounts for different patterns of communication and speech, but our brains are even structured differently. Women have different, a uh, greater amount of synaptical connections between the two hemispheres of their brain. It's one reason why women multitask much better than men. You guys have probably noticed this, right? Um, but conversely, men are much better at focus, at compartmentalization for that exact same reason. Um, so men are good at kind of sing, single-minded, and there are uh, there are theories as to wh what in our evolutionary past accounts for these differences, but the, the 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 basic point: our brains work differently in some significant ways. I mentioned the term um, intersex. The more clinical term is disorders of sexual development. Um, some people don't like that because they don't like the term disorder. It sounds, it sounds mean um, somehow, but it's, a, it's an apt um, medical term. Um, intersex is a term used to describe a variety of conditions, some of them genetically based, some um, have other causes, in which a person is born with reproductive or sexual anatomy that doesn't fit within the typical parameters of being male or female. Um, and estimates, the UN estimate is from one half of 1% to um, a little under 2% of the population. If you sort through the, the data and the indicators, the, the real number is at the low end here. Um, it's probably somewhere between 0.2% and 0.05%, because sometimes what gets counted as an intersex condition is really just a variation in physiological expression, right? A man with a smaller than normal penis um, can be counted as having an intersex condition. A woman with a larger than normal clitoris can be counted as having an intersex condition. Those aren't really intersex conditions. Those are really just variations in physiological expression. But regardless of the condition we're talking about, even in cases where um, there is a, a genetic or chromosomal anomaly of some kind, these are not exceptions to binary sexual difference. They are variations in sexual expression within that binary difference. Intersex are not exceptions that explode the rule. They are exceptions that confirm the rule. Um, we had a very interesting dissertation done um, at Catholic University a couple of years ago, which I hope 
like Father Thomas's excellent dissertation, will soon be published. But we had a student write on intersex in light of the theology of the body. This is Dr. Beth Lofgren, who's teaching at Mount St. Mary's University. And her argument was, in John Paul II's understanding, the body speaks in its masculinity or femininity. In the case of an intersex person, the body still speaks. It's just that that speech becomes a whisper. So we have to lean in and listen more closely to what the body speaks. But we can still read the body of an intersex person as male or female. It just takes a little bit more care and discernment. And then there's gender dysphoria, which is where I'm going to focus and which is where we get into much more contested territory. Gender dysphoria is a, the current preferred term for the feeling of distress that can occur in people whose perception of their gender identity differs from their biological sex or sex-related physical characteristics. And let me just say, whether we call it gender identity disorder or gender dysphoria, this is a real struggle for people, right? This, th there's real psychological pain. And so that's, let's, let's acknowledge that at the outset. The question is, how do we respond to that? How do we best help these people work through this pain and struggle that they're going through? And that's where immediately we're in controversy, right? Because even in the language itself, gender dysphoria, which is what the current diagnostic and statistical manual, the DSM-5 calls it, versus gender identity disorder, which is what the DSM-4 called it. And again, I think more accurately so, but because of political pressures, that language has been changed. And then how do we care for people dealing with gender dysphoria? As I'll talk about in a moment, um, the, 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 the options are stark and very different. Chemical and surgical transitioning versus psychological intervention and therapy to help a person accept the reality of their body and its sex. And both of those can be called gender affirming, which one is accurate accurately so described. But let's step back a minute from the, the, the clinical and scientific discussion. We'll be back here in a moment. For some years, we have been hearing from the church warnings about gender ideology, right? First, different Vatican dicasteries, and then the magisterium itself, the, uh, Pope Benedict XVI and now Pope Francis have been warning about uh, the dangers of gender ideology. One of the clearest and I think most comprehensive descriptions was given by Pope Benedict XVI in his final Christmas address to the Roman Curia just before he retired. And who knew that was a thing um, until he did that? But um, this is only a very short excerpt. And by the way, those of you who are in the room with me can see that I failed PowerPoint school because the first rule of creating PowerPoint slides is don't put a lot of text on your slides. I have colleagues who will look at my slides and say, you know, you don't have to put all that text on there. You can just use bullets. And I say, uh-huh. Yep, I know. So um, I, I acknowledge it. I, yeah. So, and again, this is a short excerpt of a very long, very profound address. Um, uh, one chunk of which is devoted to this issue. Pope Benedict says, the famous saying of Simone de Beauvoir, one is not born a woman, one becomes so, on ne n'est pas femme, on le devient. These words lay the foundation for what is put forward today under the term gender as a new philosophy of sexuality. According to this philosophy, sex is no longer a given element of nature that man has to accept and personally make sense of, it is a social role that we choose for ourselves, while in the past it was chosen for us by society. People dispute the idea they have a nature given by their bodily identity that serves as a defining element of the human being. They deny their nature and decide that it is not something previously given to them, but they made it, make it for themselves. The words of the creation account, male and female, he created them, no longer apply. This is Pope Benedict taking his predecessor's vision in the theology of the body and applying it directly to this issue. And what he, he makes a couple of very, very important points here. One, 
that the, the initial philosophical distinction between gender and sex that we get with mid 20th century existentialist philosophy by the beginning of the 21st century has become the idea that gender is not a social construct that you are socialized into. It is a self-chosen, self-named reality that has little or nothing to do with your body and your human nature. And so when you, when you make that move, what happens to your conception of reality, of the world around you? It's not unlike Lewis Carroll's uh, traveling through the looking glass. We, we move into a kind of an Alice in Wonderland world, which is the world that's being formed around us in the culture as this ideology gains force. So let me just point to a couple of the, the impacts of this. The first and most immediate, of course, is if gender is self-chosen, then there obviously aren't two of genders. There's multiple genders. There's dozens and dozens and dozens. Um, some years ago, seven, eight years ago, Facebook introduced 70 different gender options for its users. And if one of those doesn't fit you, you can design your own. The UN is currently debating treaties that would recognize over 100 genders and make it a human rights violation not to do so. So ge the <laughs> gender genie is out of the bottle and there are as many genders as we can think of or imagine. The impact on medicine, which I alluded to earlier, um, what gender activists recommend is what that when young children show signs of gender discordance, we should allow them to socially transition, use the names and pronouns of the other sex, and put them on uh, puberty blockers before they reach adolescence to delay adolescence and the changes that sex hormones will bring to their bodies, even though that's off-label use of that medication. And all the early indications are that it creates havoc in the bodies of these children we put on these medications. Um, and then during adolescence, they should go on cross-sex hormones. And then when they're old enough and different states have different legal parameters for this, they can opt for surgical transition. And in California, there are centers which will perform double mastectomies on healthy girls as young as 12 years old. They will perform castrations on boys as young as 15 years old, right? Because apparently that works in California law. And all of this, by the way, in spite of the fact that every study that's been done from every perspective shows that gender discordance in children resolves itself with little or no medical or psychological intervention at a rate of 80 to 90% by the time those children grow into adulthood. So why the heavy-handed draconian medical intervention? Especially when, again, we look at the data of putting children on puberty, going on cross-sex hormones. And by the way, a person who chemically transitions will have to stay on cross-sex hormones for their entire life because their body actively resists the chemical override to which it's being subjected. The best studies that have been done to date have found that the rate of suicide among people who have fully transitioned chemically, surgically, is 19 times higher than the population as a whole. How is that good medical care, right? And that study was done in Scandinavia, an ostensibly trans-friendly culture, right? So how is this good medicine? The, the secular European Union is looking at this data, which is why many EU countries are putting the brakes on these procedures for children and adolescents, because they're saying, actually, the evidence is showing all kinds of bad outcomes and, and harm here. In the United States, we're not pumping the brakes. We're hitting the gas. Um, someone who is fully transitioned may come to look like the other sex. They will never bear children as a member of the other sex because fertility is destroyed through the process of chemical and surgical transitioning. I, I, if you have not done so, I really encourage you to read some stories and testimonies by people who have detransitioned, people who have walked all the way down this path to the bitter end and realized that all of this medical intervention did nothing to address the pain with which they were struggling. 
and therefore tried to, as best they could, restore their bodies to their original condition, even though their bodies will be scarred and their fertility will still be destroyed. They realized that if they were going to find peace of mind and peace of heart, it wasn't going to be found through these kinds of interventions. We have ostensibly educational programs like Drag Queen Storytime in our public libraries or um, programs used in our public schools like the Gender Unicorn, which are, again, ostensibly aimed at teaching children not to bully gender discordant peers, but what they're actually teaching when you look at them with any degree of care or thought is that your body is basically irrelevant to your gender identity. Your, your body and its sex assigned at birth, that's just one pretty unimportant factor in who you decide to be. It's all these other things, right? Um, your gender expression, who you're physically attracted to, who you're emotionally attracted to, all these are bundled together. That helps form and create your gender identity. And your gender identity is fluid. It can change. Um, and we have entertainment companies, ostensibly aimed at family entertainment, that are basically have become kind of agents of uh, spreading this set of ideas in our culture. Then we have what's going on in our language, right? A language itself becomes a, a contested. So we have new sets of pronouns trying to describe people who don't fit in traditional gender categories. In some states and jurisdictions in this country, intentionally misgendering is a crime. In New York City, you can be fined $50,000 for intentionally misgendering someone. In the state of California, you can face jail time, although that law is currently being challenged in court. Right? So language itself has become weaponized. And if someone steps outside of the bounds, we cancel them. Um, uh, people who have detransitioned are among the most attacked and canceled uh, individuals in our society, um, just by the way. And then we have the impact on um, the, the threat, frankly, to uh, women um, posed by this. The, I mean, the obvious dangers, the basically doing away with women's athletics as a separate sphere. Because when you have physiological men, even who are on, uh, who have been chemically transitioning for some period of arbitrary period of time, they still have incredible physiological difference, which gives them advantage in particular sports. When the person who now is called Leah Thomas swam as a male swimmer in NCAA competition, Leah Thomas was ranked 462nd in the country. When Leah Thomas was on chemical cross-sex hormones for a year and competed as a woman, Leah Thomas finished first in that same swimming event. Leah Thomas also has the physiological build of Michael Phelps, which kind of gives that swimmer an enormous advantage over the other swimmers in the pool. The fact, even more um, potentially dangerous, the fact that women have to share restrooms, locker rooms, public facilities with biological men who identify as women. Um, we have several cases around the country of men in male prisons, correctional facilities, including some sex offenders who have identified as a woman, been transferred into women's facilities, and we now have trans women impregnating women in women's prisons. So, and again, people who speak up against this and say this is insane, this poses threats to women, are labeled TERFs, trans-exclusionary radical feminists like J.K. Rowling, um, and we try to kind of shut them down. Where does this come from? Um, Pope Benedict has already pointed us toward one of the philosophical foundations. Um, 20th century existentialist thought, right? Um, the ideas of Simone de Beauvoir, Jean-Paul Sartre, right, for whom there is there's no human nature because there's no God who could have invented human nature. So we have to determine the meaning of our own existence. Postmodern thought, um, which questions the very foundations of our knowledge and the ability to know truth. So for Judith Butler, a postmodern feminist philosopher, 
but not just gender is a social construct, so is sex. These are both constructs. They're both a form of performance that we perform in different ways, in different matrices of power in specific contexts. Marx and Engels, who at the end of their career together called for the abolition of the family, right? Because the family in, for Marx is an instrument of oppression. It's an instrument of holding people in, in their, uh, their, their bondage to the ruling class. Um, some people taking kind of Marx and Engels a step further have basically advocated, well, if we do away with sex, will effectively have done away with the family. So Shulamith Firestone, a Marxist thinker, wrote a book in 1970, The Dialectic of Sex, in which she argued that the only way for women to be socially, economically, and politically equal to men was when all sexual reproduction took place in the laboratory. When, when women no longer got pregnant and bore children, then they could be equal to men. Again, if you abolish sexual difference, you have effectively abolished the family. And then we have the work of John Money, a psychologist from New Zealand who ran the uh, transitioning program at Hopkins for many years, Johns Hopkins University Hospitals. Money was one of the first scientists to argue that gender was something we could socialize. It wasn't given. It wasn't rooted in our biology. His most famous case were a case of twin boys, one of whom was the victim of a botched circumcision, the Reimer twins, whose parents brought them to money. And money said, no problem, we'll raise this one as a girl. And he subjected them to, quote, years of therapy in which he ostensibly was teaching them to inhabit the social roles of being male or female. What he was actually having them do, we, we subsequently learned, is sexually abuse one another. Money was a criminal, frankly. He should have been in jail. Um, it, in, in adulthood, the uh, David Reimers, who had, had been raised as a, tried, uh, tried to be raised as a girl, rejected that, tried to go back to being uh, a male. Unfortunately, the psychological trauma to which he had been subjected was such that he committed suicide. And yet, if you look at scientific articles about trying to give a scientific basis for gender theory, Money is always cited positively. How is that man's work cited positively, right? How is that? Anyway, um, so th th this amalgam of uh, atheistic philosophy and um, bad science kind of wraps around and gives us a, a pseudo intellectual basis to this whole approach. And then, of course, we have the impact we talked about last night of the industrial revolution and the fracturing of the family, the sexual revolution and the exclusion of fertility from marriage, but also from personal identity. And then the fact that we spend more and more time in digital worlds, which kind of creates the idea that our bodies just are another screen on which we can project an identity. All of this, I think, comes together in gender ideology. But its deepest roots and its ultimate core are in the oldest heresy within Christian, the Christian tradition, namely Gnosticism. Gnosticism, which we already see evidence for in the pages of the New Testament, because the first letter of John um, describes as the Antichrist, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ come in the flesh, right? Because already late first century, the church is coming in contact with this set of ideas that is creeping around the Mediterranean world. Gnosticism was basically a form of metaphysical dualism. The idea that there is a good God and an evil God. The good God is the God of spirit and light um, and the truth that only the Gnostic teachers could impart through their secret teaching, whereas the evil God was the God of creation and matter, the God of the Old Testament. Um, the God of the, so Gnostics, Gnostics eschewed marriage, right? Because marriage led to procreation. Procreation was furthering the work of the evil God by entrapping a, a spark of spirit in dark, evil matter. Um, so Christianity opposed 
Gnosticism from the, again, even from the pages of the New Testament. Tertullian, the second century Christian writer, is emphatic, caro salutis cardo, the flesh is the hinge of salvation. It's the flesh of Christ that he assumed, that in which he suffered for us, in which was he has been glorified and is raised, and through which the grace of the sacraments come to us. That's the very source and hinge of our salvation. So any philosophy that says the, the body is evil, the body is something to be escaped from, overcome, is in one form or another tainted with this heretical idea. And this people have called Gnosticism the hydra of heresies because it just keeps coming back in the history of every, every epic, the Dominican order was founded in part to combat a version of the Gnostic heresy, Albigensian, Albigensianism. Um, so this, this is a heresy that's always been with us. Gender ideology is just a 21st century expression. So what does scripture and the commentary which the theology of the body gives us on scripture give us by way of kind of offering a better understanding of the gift of the body and sex. Um, we have, and Father, Father Thomas talked about this earlier today, the fact that male and female together are created in the image of God. And the first command given to humanity, which is also given in the form of a blessing, is the command to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Man and woman image God through their as John Paul II writes, through their mutual communion, through the communion of persons, right? This relationality and especially the capacity for their coming together, the sexual gift of self in marriage to generate new human life in the image of God is integral to the way in which God designed and created us and integral to the way in which he calls us to be fulfilled. Um, we have the fact that God in the second story of creation, as again, I'm, I'm reminding you of what Father Thomas talked about earlier here, um, the, God settles the Adam, the man, in this garden to guard and to keep or to tend and to keep it. The man encounters other creatures of the visible world who have bodies, but those bodies are not the bodies of self-aware subjects. They are some things, not someone. So he becomes aware that his existence among the creatures of the visible world is unique. He's a someone. He's not just a something. He's a person. He's not just a living creature. Animals have value. They have purpose, right? God, they're creatures of God, but they're not a person with an immortal soul called to an eternal destiny. So the uniqueness of our existence as embodied persons um, is a, a resounding no to the understanding, the anthropology articulated in gender ideology. And then we have the creation of woman, the God leading the woman to the man and the man responding with this little poem of joy. This one at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman, Isha, because out of man, Ish, she's been taken, right? John Paul says, the man rejoices because now he's met another body that expresses a person. It is a body that is like his own, but is different than his own. So he becomes aware of the meaning of his own body and the, its capacity to be a gift in encountering her. She becomes aware of the meaning of her own feminine body and its capacity to be gift in encountering him. So this is, as Father Thomas described, the spousal meaning of the body, the body's capacity for us to give ourselves as gift. And what the creation accounts also show us, John Paul is very clear, is that there is one human nature, uh, the, there's a unity of human nature, um, an identity of human nature, he writes. Duality, on the other hand, shows that on the basis of this identity constitutes the masculinity and femininity of created man. So there is one human nature that's possessed in two distinct forms in the embodied persons of male and female. There are two ways of incarnating a human nature. The body has these two fundamental forms. And that's, again, that's part of the gift 
of our existence. And he'll, he'll go on to say these are two reciprocally completing ways of being a body and at the same time being human, two complementary dimensions of self-knowledge and self-determination and at the same time, two complementary ways of being conscious of the meaning of the body. So that term he uses, complementarity, right? So men and women, we are different in our bodies, but not just in our bodies. Those bodily differences are indicative of deeper personal differences. We are not just physically complementary, John Paul II insists. We are psychologically and even ontologically complementary to one another. Um, in a paper written for the uh, Beijing Women's Conference, which John Paul II obviously approved, um, that the Holy See's paper speaks of biological, individual, personal, and spiritual complementarity. So what is, what is complementarity? It is not kind of the platonic idea that you have half a person who needs another half of a person to be a whole person. That's what Sister Prudence Allen calls fractional sex complementarity. It's no, each man, each woman is a whole integral person, but they are each possessed of distinctive gifts that when you put them together creates a synergy, a something more that you don't have in just a person alone or in two men or two women, right? So it's not one half plus one half equals one, but one plus one equals one plus, that one plus is what John Paul calls the unity of the two. Pope Francis, I think, makes one other really important distinction that I want to put in the mix of our conversation here. Um, after reiterating almost verbatim Benedict XVI's warnings about gender ideology and its impact on the family, he adds this. This is in Amoris Laetitia. It needs to be emphasized that biological sex and the sociocultural role of sex or gender can be distinguished but not separated. In other words, yeah, we can recognize that, of course, different cultures in our world today or throughout history have under, had different expectations for what it is to live as a woman or a man in that culture. And that's okay. And we can call that gender. As long as we don't dissociate that from the bodily reality of being a man or a woman, of being male or female. So we can distinguish but not separate. Gender ideology goes off the roll, the rails, excuse me, because it advocates a radical separation of gender and sex. And in, do in doing so, rejects both the body and human nature. So how do we put this together? Well, this is my own sketch, so take it for what it's worth. Um, but I, I think it's reflective of what we've seen in uh, the teaching of John Paul II. There is one human nature that both men and women possess, and yet men and women are irreducibly different as persons. They are two embodied forms of human personhood. So when we think about human nature as a whole, we would have to say sex difference is an accidental quality of human nature because human nature is possessed by both men and women. When we think about human nature or sex difference as possessed by individual persons, I'm going to argue it's an essential difference. And what do I mean by that? I, by, I'm using this in, in the Aristotelian Thomistic sense. An essential quality is one that if a, a thing loses this quality, it's no longer the same thing. Aristotle gives an example. It belongs to the nature of numbers that they be either odd or even, but any existing number is only going to be odd or even. If I take three and I make it even, it's no longer three. If I take two and I make it odd, it's no longer two. If I were to take a man and make that man a woman and gender transitioning does not do that even biologically by any stretch of the imagination, that would be an ontological change in the individual but we, we can't do that. We don't do that. Only God could do that. And again, God doesn't reject the gift of our nature and our bodies as he designed them. And then I think we could start to think about a further distinction applying Pope Francis's language that we could think about the different vocations 
to which we are called, and we'll think more about this, I think, in the next talk, um, and the distinctive gifts of each sex as more deeply rooted in the person and the body. In other words, only a man can be a husband and a father. Only a woman can be a wife and a mother. Those are not social roles. Those are vocations. Those are ways of living our Christian call to holiness in a particular state in life. Whereas gender, if we're following Pope Francis's distinction, we could think of as kind of the, the way in which different cultures think about how you live out what it means to be a man or a woman, how you inhabit different roles in a culture. Eh, I, I, think that's, I think that works as an initial way to start thinking about this. So some, some kind of takeaway points here, um, pulling some of these threads together from the thinking about gender ideology in light of the theology of the body. We have to start by affirming that creation is a gift and that within that, our body and sex difference are gifts. These are gifts given to us by God. They're an integral part of who we are. Every human being has dignity as being made in the image and likeness of God. And that includes people who have an intersex condition, people who are struggling with gender dysphoria or gender identity disorder, people who are struggling with same-sex attraction. Every human being has the same dignity. Every human being is called into an eternal relationship of love with God. And every human being is fulfilled by learning how to make a gift of him or herself in love. And our bodies are an integral part of that. Again, the body expresses the person. Our bodies are a window into who we are as persons. They're not a screen on which we write an identity. Um, the, another way to think about this, another image here that I think can be helpful. Think of, the, think of your body as a compass, right? A, a compass has a kind of, it orients you to a certain direction. Our bodies have an a, a particular teleology, right? Um, but to navigate rightly and well with that co the compass of our bodies, we need the further map given to us in the light of the natural law and revelation, right? And so the theology of the body as a way to, as a commentary on scripture and as a way to read scripture can help give us further navigational data. It, it reminds us, that our bodies point us toward love, which is our origin, the love of God, the love of our parents, but love, which is also our destiny and our fulfillment. We're only created, we are created to be fulfilled in learning to give a gift of ourselves in love. Final note, I think we need to make a distinction that between <laughs> the errors of gender ideology which I've argued is heretical ultimately and based, um, based on a bad reading of um, the world around us, but a bad reading of scripture, a bad reading of science and medicine, right? There's, it's, a, it's a distorted picture of a path to human flourishing and happiness. Um, and it, it ultimately has spiritual roots. This is part of the spiritual battle that we've been fighting in the church from the beginning. Cardinal Robert Sarah says, gender ideology is a Luciferian deception. And I think he's right, right? That's what our battle is against. Our battle is not against people who are struggling with gender discordance or even the activists who are promoting this set of ideas because those people too are loved by God and called to a communion of live with God. But their ideas need to be defeated. Right? Just as the fathers of the church in their work of evangelization saw defeating heresy in the church, but also in the life of the world in which they lived as part of the mission of evangelization to which they were called. We have the same call. At the same time, I think we need, as Pope Francis often reminds us, we need to be careful not to weaponize scripture or church teaching against people who are struggling, right? Gender discordant people need, uh, they need to be befriended, listened to, heard. If, you, if, you, if you're dealing with someone who has been exposed to gender ideology and has drunk some of the Kool-Aid, 
throwing truth bombs at them, whether from science or scripture, is not going to get you very far, right? But befriending them, listening to them, and then, hate to use this term, I'll use it advisedly, accompanying them. When I was at the 2015 Synod, oh boy, accompanying accompany was the buzzword. I had three weeks of accompaniment, accompaniment, accompaniment. I got back and one of our graduate students was inviting a speaker to camp, inviting Paul Gondreau to campus. And he, he said, uh, would you accompany us to dinner afterward? And I said, no, I won't, but I'll go with you. Just please don't make me accompany. It's too much too soon. But I think here it's, it's the right word, right? But notice, Accompaniment means we walk next to someone in order to lead them to Christ, right? We're, we're, we're not walking aimlessly. So when responding in charity toward people who are struggling with gender discordance, that charity has to be rooted in truth. We, and we, it has to be aimed at guiding them toward Christ, who is the great physician, who can actually treat what they're struggling with. And yes, they may need... Um, psychological help as well. The best scientific, as far as I can tell, the best scientific read of gender ideology, or excuse me, gender dysphoria, is it's a form of body dysmorphic disorder. It's in the same family as anorexia, right? So the anorexic doesn't need appetite suppressants and liposuction. The anorexic needs psychological intervention to help him or her accept the reality of their body as it is and move forward um, in that way. And then just in closing, um, if you wanna delve more deeply into this subject, if, uh, for the science here, I strongly recommend um, the New Atlantis Report by Lawrence Meyer and Paul McHugh, Sexuality and Gender. Um, Paul McHugh shut down the transitioning program at Hopkins some years ago when he was director of psychology because he said, this is bad medicine and we're not helping our patients. And after, after McHugh's retirement and under pressure from activists, Hopkins <clears throat> has restarted its program. Ryan Anderson's book, When Harry Became Sally, the best book on the public policy implications of all of this, which, by the way, got taken down from Amazon and is no longer sold on Amazon once the Equality Act was introduced into the House of Representatives a couple of years ago. And then both Abigail Favale and I have recent books, Hers with Ignatius, Mine with Tan, kind of going into the, the, the history and the inside of this ideology, but then responding in light of the church's teaching and the theology of the body. So there are some resources out there if you want to pursue this a little bit more fully. So I went slightly long. Thank you for staying with me and your time and attention. And I think we have a couple minutes for questions. Floor is open. Yes, sir. So, yeah, the suicide rates of people with gender dysphoria are very tragic. And I'm wondering if we have the statistics of people with the suicide rates of people with gender dysphoria who transition versus the people with gender suicide rates of people with dysphoria who don't transition. Do we know the difference? That, that's a great question. I don't know if we've. So, um, <laughs> so the question is. Um, do we have uh, comparative data for people who have fully transitioned uh, the, the rate of uh, suicidality among them versus people who are struggling with gender dysphoria who have not transitioned? And uh, it's a great question. I'll simply say that data may be out there. I haven't seen it. I imagine it can be a little hard to find data like that because it tends to get suppressed. Um, again, I mentioned the, the term gender, rapid onset gender dysphoria. Uh, Lisa Littman did a, did a number of studies, published them, and has been viciously attacked and, and kind of shunned um, in scientific circles because it's, it's breaking the narrative. Um, so, yeah, I, I would, there are, there are resources out there which, which might have and might publish data like this, Family Research Council, Heritage, um, that you could, you could, Mary Hassan's organization, you could look at those. Um, they may, they, they do try to publish some of that scientific um, data that doesn't get much attention elsewhere. Great question. Yes, please. So the question, um, 
Is rapid onset gender dysphoria the result of um, environmental um, conditions or other other factors? The evidence seems to indicate it's it's very environmental. It's people who are again, oftentimes who are struggling with their own sense of identity, maybe because they're on the autism spectrum, maybe because of other other personal re maybe because they come from a family that's been um, that's wounded in some way. And so they're looking for where do I fit? Where do I belong? And suddenly they come across this set of ideas or a friend group, whether again in an online community or a, a, an actual group of friends who says, we can fix all of this for you. All you have to do is walk this path and here's the information you need so that you can really be who you want to be. Um, yeah, it really does seem to, it's some people use the term contagion. It's almost like a social contagion, right? Spreading from one uh, person and group to another. And that that's really seems to be what the data shows. Another very good question. Yes, uh, it, second last row and then the second row. Uh, Great question. So the question is, um, I mentioned the statistics, which indicate 80 to 90 percent of children who show ge a gender discordance as a child outgrow it by the time they reach adulthood with little or no medical or psychological intervention. Um, what what seems to be the case is these uh, individuals will um, grow up. And maybe they'll be a little bit gender atypical as an adult. In other words, maybe this will be a woman who really likes athletic competition, or this will be a man who has a particular interest in art. But they'll they'll be they'll have a sense of themselves as a man or a woman, right? So it's no longer a question for them. Um, that's what the studies seem to indicate. In other words, they they it's the idea that you know, I'm, I'm conflicted. I don't fit in with my friend group or peer group. They, they moving through adolescence and into adulthood, they come to a more stable sense of themselves. Again, this is becoming um, more contested as these ideas spread. And as pe people who are going through that kind of struggle are exposed to, oh, but maybe you're in the wrong bio. Maybe you had the wrong sex assigned at birth. And maybe you need to try this instead. But that's that's what I was. That's the the data I've seen from those studies. Yes. I'm. So the question is: Does the Enlightenment play a role here? Um, it, in forming and giving birth to gender ideology, sure. I mean, insofar as the Enlightenment is a seedbed and a backdrop for some of those modern currents of thought that I mentioned, existentialism. I mean, the Enlightenment is already kind of a rejection of both Aristotelian teleology, but also a, a Christian teleology rooted in an understanding of creation. So, and the Enlightenment claims to be able to replace those as foundations for knowledge with science and rationality um, and rationality understood very much on empiricist scientific terms. So there's already been a desta fundamental destabilization of truth that those later philosophies, existentialism, postmodernism, are going to build on and expand in some way. So they're, they're kind of like the, the unruly stepchildren of the Enlightenment, you could say. Great question. Yes. So the question, is this exacerbated in an American context by the uh, kind of the American emphasis on an ideal of freedom? And I would I would say yes. And I would add to um, another term here, and that is American individualism. Right. The idea of being an, an individual, having autonomy, being able to determine for yourself um, your own reality, your own destiny. 
sure that plays a role. And maybe that's part of why we're lagging behind the secular EU in actually paying attention to what's going on in medicine, which is actually medicalized self-harm. We're not looking at this from the perspective of evidence-based medicine. We're just saying we're letting, people have to decide for themselves. They are medical consumers. And so therefore they should be able to get whatever kind of products they want. Um, so yeah, may, maybe that's a factor. I mean, that's a really interesting question. There was a question right behind you. Yes. I know you talked a little bit about that, like, this is saying we're just saying it's kind of out of our bodies, but, like, what is causing that in us? So, like, I mean, the people that they just completely reject everything that they say. Yeah. So the question, um, why is gender ideology so compelling to people, including people who have been raised Catholic, gone through Catholic schooling? Um, I'm sure there's a multitude of reasons. I, I think I mentioned one um, last night, and that is um, building on Mary Everstadt's work. The fact that so many people are struggling with the question of who am I? Where do I belong? Because of trauma in their life, trauma in their family, trauma in their um, community of whatever kind, I think that plays a role. Um, I think uh, Gnosticism has always had an a, appeal as an easy, as a kind of easy fix to the human condition, right? You'd, it's not sin that's that's making you makes us unhappy, makes us miserable. It's really just it's it's your physicality. So we're going to give you this new high-tech way to kind of overcome that so that you can be happy and fulfilled. It's a, you know, it's, a, again, it's, it's a 21st century version of a very old heretical distortion of the human reality. But it's, Gnosticism has always had its appeal. Um, again, the Dominicans can tell us that, you know, their, the history of their order is very much tied in with the impact of another iteration of this heresy in medieval Europe. Um, so, yeah, this is, this is a fight we've been in for the long haul, and I think we're, we're in for the foreseeable future. But in point of fact, we have a better narrative. We have a better account of who we are, what we're called to be, that coheres not just with our faith and scripture, but coheres with science and medicine and reality. So we have to, when we when you see people struggling with and starting to you know, drink the Kool-Aid, we have a better alternative to offer them. Yes. Oh, oh we have two, two hands going. Go ahead. Yeah. So the question is, how do you help young early adolescents um, combat this set of ideas? Um, you said you're a middle school teacher, Catholic school or a public school? Catholic school. Good. That's a start. Um, there, there are resources out there. I think we need more of them, frankly, but that are specifically trying to make this kind of rich biblical and philosophical content in the theology of the body available and accessible to middle school kids, right, who are on the front lines of this because they're getting bombarded with it all of the time in their culture. In, um, there was a study done just last year that found that children in two-parent homes, so you have a mother and a father present in the home, on average will spend 30 minutes per week in one-to-one -one conversation with their father. That same child will spend 30 hours per week on average on social media, consuming um, videos, um, an online chat, um, in all these other forms. So who's forming that child, right? So I think in Catholic schools, one, we need to re-engage the parents because the church, the church's liturgy tells us they're supposed to be the primary educators of the children in the faith. But two, draw on some of these resources, theology of the body for teens, right? And help, because I do think the theology of the body is an effective antidote to some of the distortions and untruths that we have in gender ideology. 
Uh, we, we need, the, the kids are getting the other side all the time. So we need to offer them an alternative, a better alternative, frankly. Um, that's, a, that's a start, I think. The two, two questions, but um, in the second row, you, you were first, I think. Yes. So I feel like in Christian circles, especially as almost like a reaction to a lot of the like sexual, like, like post-sexual revolution take on sex, and um, also like to like a more like recent extent like gender ideology. There's kind of this like covert emphasis on Shotzi that also seems to not always affirm the like the truth, like like kind of like a I don't want to say too much Shotzi, but like kind of. So I think I understand your question. Let me try to restate and you can um, correct if I'm not getting it quite. So I think the question is in trying to combat things like gender ideology and uh, our sexually um, crazy and permissive culture, sometimes there's kind of an overemphasis on chastity as a response, which can also kind of lead to certain kinds of distortion. Is that right? Yeah, I guess, well, I guess like a distortion of chastity, like almost sort of like, yeah, like, right. like the sexual nature of us as Christians is something that's like more basal than it is like what it brings God. Right. Okay. So um, kind of a, a pessimistic anthropology in terms of um, our, sex, our sexual drive, the sexual urge, as Carol Wojtyla calls it. I think Father Thomas is going to hit this more in the next talk, so I don't want to try to steal his thunder. I will say that, um, I mean, I, I, I think it's true, and I think it's important. I think there's, there's truth in that. I think sometimes we can, we, we're confronted with an extreme, so we swing to the other extreme, and we lose the virtuous mean here. Um, the the answer to uh, out of control uh, expressions of sex and the sexual drive and the sexual urge in a culture is not to opt for some kind of repression, a la Victorian morality, right? It and that's not Voitiwa John Paul II's vision, as as Father Thomas alluded to. Chastity is the integration of the gift of our sexuality and the body so it can be ordered toward the authentic gift to others in a way that's congruent with our state in life, whether we are single, whether we are married, whether we are consecrated, religious, or celibate. It, it is, it's self-possession that makes self-donative love possible. It is not repression. Um, for, for, for Thomas, Again, chastity is a virtue that lies between vicious extremes, lust on the one hand and insensibility, uh, which is kind of a rejection of the needs and demands of nature and the body and sexuality on the other. That's not a virtue. That's a vice, right? So we need to recover chastity as virtuous mean um, between vicious extremes. And the extremes are our culture as we see it and something like a a Victorian reaction to try to tamp out any any uh, trace of the sex drive on the other. It's a simplistic answer to a really interesting question. Last question. While I agree that there are uh, certain similarities uh, between uh, kind of nihilist, let's make heaven or earth, uh, ideology which allows for things like transgenderism to seem reasonable and Gnosticism I feel like demographically trans ideologues and Gnostics are very different in that um, especially people who deem themselves to be Gnostics are almost always in my experience anecdotally right um, so I guess my question is why? What? What? Uh, what is it then? Why is it then you deem transgenderism to be ideologically born out of Gnosticism, as opposed to this simply being a case of transposition of offices 
in which actually the complete opposite of Gnosticism, hyper-materialism, and having no faith in there even being the materiality so that you think that your only hope is at happiness is to have a material existence that matches what you would like it to be most closely with its opposite, which is Gnosticism. Okay. Um, really interesting question. So why associate um, gender ideology with Gnosticism? Um, I'm going to have to answer briefly because of the cons constraints of time, obviously. Um, I think, uh, for me, a couple of key indicators. One, the view that comes out of gender ideology, which is also throughout any iteration of Gnosticism that I've ever seen historically, as the body is something to be overcome. The body is a limit on self-realization, freedom, salvation, however you want to describe it. You can describe it as religiously or as uh, anthropomorphically as you want. But if the body is an obstacle, which I have to overcome in order to be happy in who I am, there's, there are Gnostic assumptions at work. Second, I think the determined rejection of fertility as integral to the person, right, which every iteration of Gnosticism has shared in and gender ideology shares in, right? Fertility is part of the problem because it's part of your sex assigned at birth. And so what if it's destroyed by chemical or surgical transitioning? It's, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a necessary sacrifice and it's really not important anyway. I was really, in, in doing research for my book, I was really... Uh, Surprised, but then not surprised to find that one of the growing providers of gender transitioning services in, in our country right now is Planned Parenthood. Um, but it's think about it. It's a consistent business model on their part, right? They are in the anti-fertility business. So, of course, this fits. So I think, I mean, yes. And by the way, if you study the history of Gnosticism, every iteration looks different. It takes... One of the things about Gnosticism is it's so plastic, it will take on the intellectual and social uh, hues of whatever culture and situation it emerges in. That's one reason why it was so hard for the early church to distinguish Orthodox Christian faith from Gnostic teaching in the second and third century, because it looks and sounds a lot like Christianity at times. But you can find these common threads. And I think those are two keys for me that says there's a, there's a common lineage here. So, great questions. Thank you all. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org slash donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.